You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Good morning and welcome to Black Hollywood Live, Justice is Served, where we bring you all of the week's hottest legal stories. I'm your host, Lonnie Coombs, along with my co-host, Mari Fagel. Lonnie, thank you for having me today. So happy to have you here. Mari, as you know, was gone for a while and she's back and we're so happy that she's back. We have a lot of stories to cover today, but the first one is a story that you're going to recognize. It's been in the headlines every day for the past week, and it's the story about Michael Brown. For those of you who are not familiar with it, Michael Brown is an 18-year-old African-American young man in Ferguson, Missouri, who was gunned down by a police officer. The story that is coming out is that Michael Brown was walking down the street with another friend, allegedly another young man named Dorian Johnson. They were walking down in the middle of the street, and a police officer pulled up and told them to get out of the street. The friend, Dorian Johnson, says they didn't get out of the street, I guess, fast enough for the police officer. The next thing he knows, there's a struggle going on between his friend, Big Mike, as he refers to him, and the police officer. Something to do with around the police car. The officer never got out of the police car. At some point, a gunshot goes off. Michael gets freed, and Michael and Dorian start running down the street. There's more gunfire, and Dorian sees that Mike is hit. He says that Mike then turns around, raises his hands, and starts telling the police officer, I'm not armed, I'm not armed. And the police officer continues to shoot multiple times, killing Michael Brown. Now, we do know this to be true. Michael Brown was unarmed, and he was killed from multiple gunshots from the police officer. The community was understandably outraged. The police did not reveal a lot of information at the time, including the police officer's name. This occurred Saturday night. Sunday night, there were protests that turned into riots and looting and a lot of violence against not only property, but the police officers who came in to try to stop the looting. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, there were riots every night after that, starting out as protests and then getting more violent. And the police responded by going into essentially war-type warfare. They were wearing camouflage. They were using military weapons that apparently this small police force has. Um, They were using tear gas. And a lot of people were getting hurt in the melee. People were being arrested. Two reporters said that they got arrested and then released um, with no charges and no explanation. The police were asking the protesters to disperse at night, but that wasn't happening. And that's when a lot of the violence occurred. The governor came out and spoke about it. President Obama came out and spoke about it. Um, The FBI came in, and they said they were going to be running their parallel investigation and opening a civil rights investigation. The Ferguson Police Department immediately turned the investigation over to their county, which is St. Louis County Police Department. Uh, But it still seems like there were a lot of issues going on. And finally, just this morning, the police officer who did the shooting, his name was revealed. Now, 
the law enforcement had said they were going to reveal it back on Tuesday, but then they said there were so many threats, death threats, against the police officer and his family, which were then spreading to the entire police department. They said they were in fear for his life, and they didn't think it was safe to release his name, but now they have. Some other things that have occurred is that the governor stepped in and turned the investigation over to the head of the highway patrol, taking it out of the hands of the people who had been running the investigation. A couple of interesting facts that need to be known about this story. Ferguson is almost 70% African-American in this small community, about 21,000 people. Their police department, who has just over 50 personnel, only three of the officers are African-American. The stats also show that as far as stops and frisks and searches, a disproportionate amount of those are African-American suspects as opposed to Caucasian suspects. These are some of the things that people are pointing to as to why this case has erupted into such a, a big story nationwide and actually worldwide. Within 30 minutes of the police officer's name being revealed this morning, and his name is Daryl Wilson, Daryl Wilson was the top Twitter search around the world within 30 minutes. So a lot of people are watching this case, they're watching the investigation, and they're wondering, can justice be done in this case? Have the police already shown a bias here that people will never get over? Can the FBI step in and do the right thing? Mari, what do you think? Do you think this is another Trayvon Martin uh, situation, or do you think that there's something that can come out of this that could be good? Well, I think... Even out of Trayvon Martin, despite the uh, not guilty verdict, I think there was something that came out of it that was good, and that's awareness. Awareness of uh, the underlying issues of race and guns in our country and of certain racial biases and of thinking that because of the color of someone's skin and because of their age, that person must be armed. And in my mind, this has erupted at a level that we've never even seen before. With Trayvon Martin, it took at least a couple weeks before we saw the protests and the marches in the street and the hoodies, the um, you know million hoodie marches. We saw the hands up, don't shoot, uh, you know, logo and slogan already within th this. 18-year-old man hasn't even been dead a week. And in my mind, I think that Trayvon Martin and what happened there set us up for where we are today. I think the reason it erupted is because people in this country are sick and tired of, you know, reading another news story every, you know, every week almost of a black unarmed young male or female being shot and killed. I mean, how many times on this show mm -hmm. has our case of the week or the headline of our show been unarmed black male or female shot to death because the person figured, oh, because of the color of their skin, they're probably armed, they're probably dangerous, I'm going to shoot first. It's self-defense. I mean, Renisha McBride, we talked about last week, Trayvon Martin, uh, Jonathan Farrell, the list can go on and on. And um, I think that's why there's so much outrage with this one. It's been enough. And I think the other difference is that this is a policeman. And, uh, you know, also in Jonathan Farrell's case, it was a policeman who shot him as well. But I think the country gets even more outraged when the very people that are supposed to be there to serve and protect, the people that you're supposed to call when trouble happens, are the people who are pulling the trigger in mm -hmm. this case. Mm -hmm. And I think that people are outraged over that, and I think that some good can come of it. I think that there needs to be more facts because right. a lot is going on in this first week when we don't know 
all of the facts. I think that one reason why um, the police station did rush to release his name before next week was because Anonymous, the uh, hackers, had already released it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that vigilante justice... remember, they they released the wrong name. Uh, Yeah. They released the wrong name, and there were death threats put put against that person. But there were some legal filings that said, if you don't release it before Monday, we'll have a a judge order you to do it. So that might have been... Yeah. But I think that... They they released it because of the mistake that Anonymous had made and because it's reaching such levels of, like, pandemonium that we just, I think that we do need to step back and wait for all the facts to come out. But regardless, even if it is true that there was a struggle in the car, I mean, there's it's basically a he said, he said between the police officer and... And uh, the witness to this crime, you know, the witness to this crime said that uh, the police officer, as you mentioned, stopped them for walking in the middle of the street in the middle of the day, 1.40 p.m. on a Saturday, uh, as they were walking to the victim's grandmother's house, and then pulled him by the neck into the car. And then at one point, a shot went off in the car. And the reason why he died 35 feet outside of the car was because then he released him and then he started to walk away and he kept shooting. The other side of the story is that Michael Brown got into the car and tried to grab for the weapon. That's when the gun went off and this officer was in fear for his life and in fear for his safety. Regardless, though, if he was 35 feet away when he died, how is that officer still in fear for his life? So I do think we need to wait and see till all of the facts come out, but even still, I think that this screams racial bias, racial profiling, and these are conversations that need to be dealt with in our country. Yeah, and and I think when you look at the history and the context of this small town, Ferguson, I don't think anyone can deny that, look, there there seem to be sort of ingrained um, some some racial prejudice there. I mean, just look at the numbers, the numbers of how many Caucasian deputies versus African-American deputies on the force right, right off the bat. An interesting move, when they changed the leader of this investigation, they chose an African-American officer to lead the investigation, which I think did um, make a lot of people in the community feel a little more comfortable with the way the investigation might be handled, someone who's local, someone who has uh, grown up there. Now, some more information did come out in the... um, in the press conference today from the police, we had heard initially, as Mari said, that the um, the struggle was over the gun. What they're saying now, they didn't really talk about that as much, but they said they went through a timeline of other phone nine one one calls that this police officer, um, Daryl Wilson, responded to. They said Daryl Wilson has been on the force six years and has never had any prior complaints of abuse or anything like that in his packet. They said that he had gone to a number of 911 calls and then got a 911 call about a strong arm robbery going on in a convenience store. In the packet of information they released to the media, they released some photographs taken from that convenience store of somebody entering in. They didn't say that it was Michael Brown or that they believed it was Michael Brown, but that apparently is the implication that media is trying to say that's why they gave us a photograph, obviously, and why else would they give us a photograph. And there's a picture of a, a, of a large um, young man with a red baseball cap and a white shirt. Um, you know, and based on what I can see from the television screen, I don't know if you can actually see the face that well. It's kind of a grainy surveillance camera uh, photograph. Um, and, and so... Apparently, now the this the narrative from the police is that he was uh, responding to what he thought was a, a strong arm robbery and that um, Michael Brown was, he thought, a suspect in that. Um, does that change 
the narrative at all. But because uh, what you pointed out, which I think is so important, is that they were running away. They were running away at the time that the shots were going off. And then, according to Dorian uh, Johnson, he tur- after he got hit the first time, he turned around and put his hands up. And he was 35 feet away, like you said, when the multitude of bullets hit his body and killed him. Even if the officer believed that this is a robbery suspect who is fleeing and that's why he's running away. The only reason to use such force is if he believes that the person fleeing is armed and dangerous. Mm -hmm. And when someone is standing up like this, that gives the complete opposite impression. And so I think, you know, we do still need to figure out all the facts, but I don't think... I don't think it'll change the narrative that much because I think that this officer assumed, based off of the color of his skin and his age, maybe the neighborhood, other factors, that this was an armed and dangerous individual. The other thing that I find is really troubling in this case is that for the the potential riots, for the protesters, this small law enforcement agency had massive amounts, apparently, of military weaponry to respond, you know, with the, with the tear gas, with the smoke bombs, with tripods of, you know, of serious weaponry. And yet, for their daily stops of suspects, they did not have any dash cam cameras posted on any of their cars. And when asked about that, the police chief said, we finally got a grant this year to get them. We received them, but we have to figure out how to attach them ourselves. And so they're sitting in the boxes still at the station. They were not attached to the cars. And I say, look, that is unacceptable. That's ridiculous. And I think that we're really at a point where for both the officers and for civilians, for innocent and for guilty people, there should not only be dash cams on all the police cars, but I don't see why every um, police officer's gun could not have a GoPro camera on it to show whatever it is. Whatever, anytime that, that gun is pulled out, what is going on, what are the circumstances, who are they firing at, and what is the police officer seeing at the time that they're pulling their gun and pulling the trigger so that everyone can see, okay, was that justified or not? But, but we'll see if we ever get to that point. I mean, I think it would clear up a lot of the misconceptions and a lot of the issues surrounding several of uh, these cases. I mean, just this week, right after the Michael Brown shooting, there's reports of an LAPD officer shooting an unarmed black man here in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And I think these stories will continue to come out. Uh, I know in Tipping the Scales, we'll be discussing the social media reaction and the reaction around the country. And what can be learned from this and and what can be done? You know, what's the message that should be taken away from this story? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, It's it's something that's very important, and I think it's raising a lot of very critical discussions around the country that it's clearly a a conversation that needs to continue on that started, you know, uh, very seriously after the Trayvon Martin. But there are so many places across our nation that these things are still going on, and, you know, on so many levels. And we brought in the FBI. Everyone thinks that's the answer. But, you know, the FBI is still supposedly investigating Trayvon Martin. They still haven't closed out the case there. So I, I don't know if that's going to be the, the total answer to this case, but I think that the public discussion is the most important thing. And now moving on to On the Docket, we were just talking about uh, 
the assumptions that the color of your skin can lead to. So, you know, this case, the police officer very well could have assumed because this person is black, he's carrying a gun. Well, uh, we talked about on this show several months ago, the assumption that because someone is black, oh, they must be shoplifting because they can't afford to be in a store like Barney's. Mm -hmm. So uh, we discussed this case when it first came out. Two separate incidents, one a male and another a female, walking into Barney's New York, uh, looking to shop for something like any other human human being and because of the color of their skin or the way they looked whatever it was thinking oh they they shouldn't be in this neighborhood or they don't have enough money to afford whatever is in barney's uh barney's salespeople, you know called the police or there's different altercations and these people stepped outside the store and then were searched and taken back to the police station under the assumption that they shoplifted when that was not true whatsoever and so uh there has been a resolution somewhat in those two cases after a nine-month investigation barney's New York has agreed to pay $525,000 in costs, fees, and penalties and institute a host of reforms to settle accusations that it singled out minority shoppers for heightened surveillance. Uh, a lot of the reforms deal with training uh, their store training their staff members in uh, racial profiling, in who shoplifters are, in raising awareness about these issues. Uh, I believe it's a step in the right direction, but do you think it's enough? Do you think it's too little, too late? Well, I I don't think, I mean, we have to do something, right? I mean, I think Oprah Winfrey had this happen to her, too, when she went in and bought, you know, something expensive. You know, I I grew up um, in in a family of seven adopted children, all different races, and my sister that was the closest to me, we were two years apart, uh, is Caucasian. And um, we would go into a store as young girls, and I would immediately feel the shopkeeper's eyes on me. And they would kind of, you know, surreptitiously follow me around the store. They never did that to my sister. So this has been going on forever. Um, And and I think that it needs to be addressed, and it needs to be obviously put into the protocols of these stores and in the level of the training so that people can say, look— you need to recognize, even if you you know don't mean to, if you have this bias, if you have this prejudice, we're not going to accept that. And you've got to look for other things. Look for suspicious activity. Don't just look at the you know what you think looks like a, a suspect. You know, based on the color of their skin. So I, I think it's a step in the right direction. Um, you know, I, what else is there? I guess you, you can penalize people by, by um, you know, putting fines on them. Um, you can definitely reimburse um, monetarily the, the victims, the targets of this, which I think is also a good move. So that there's deterrence, punishment, and training for the future. And now moving on to our next on the docket story. Uh, this was a very sad accident. I mean, someone died. Uh, Two comedians are in the hospital. I'm talking about uh, the car crash involving Tracy Morgan and a truck driver who was driving a truck for Walmart at the time. Uh, Tracy Morgan luckily is uh, on the mend. He's still struggling, his lawyer says, but his lawyer was on the Today Show this week to kind of talk about where they are right now, uh, you know, in terms of the lawsuit. So basically what happened was Tracy Morgan and his assistant and two other comedians, uh, James McNair, who died because of the accident, and Artie Fuqua, who I saw several times in New York at the mm. Comedy Cellar in New York, who I can't believe he's mm. still sitting in a hospital in critical condition. Um, they 
did the right thing. They did everything right. They hired a driver. You know, they hired, a, you know, a car to drive them back from a comedy show back to New York. And while they were on the road, a Walmart truck driver who had been up for more than 24 hours, driving for more than 24 hours, uh, was driving at unsafe speeds, hit them, and it led to this car crash. Now, uh, the lawyer for Tracy Morgan and the other victims of this car crash uh, are suing. First of all, there's a, a criminal case against the driver of the car uh, of the truck. And then there's also the civil case mm-hmm. against Walmart claiming that they violated federal safety standards because there are certain standards for truck drivers that they can drive only so so many miles a day or so many miles in their shift and drive for so many hours in their shift. And this driver exceeded them above and beyond. He was tired. He was drowsy when he was driving and he was driving recklessly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I want to get your thoughts on that and how the civil suit and criminal suit may, um, you know, have, have an effect on each other. Well, I think the civil suit is extremely important. I think this is an issue that is troubling and I think it is rampant in the in the trucking industry. And, um, you know, Walmart immediately stepped up and said, we'll take whatever responsibility we have. But let's face it, these companies want their drivers. They push their drivers to go further and farther than they really can because it's 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 money you know time is money and and they want their things there faster and the drivers are feeling pressure because if they don't do it if they don't make these you know crazy drives under a certain period of time then there's somebody else who can take their job so um you know i feel for i I suppose because i have some you know uh, loved ones who are truck drivers, and I know the dilemma that they're in um, and, and the push that they get from the employers. So I, I think that, um, you know, the driver is clearly got some issues here in the in the criminal lawsuit. He's charged with, uh, I believe, manslaughter. Um, and, you know, manslaughter is being reckless. If you're reckless and if you're driving when you're drowsy, you know, any car is a dangerous or deadly weapon. But a huge semi like he was driving this Walmart truck is extremely dangerous to anyone out there on the road. Um, and I think that Walmart is a deep pocket and they'll do whatever they can to just pay and make this go away. So I, th- I think that both the driver will probably, you know, end up with some time in prison and I think that the Walmart will be paying a lot of money to a lot of people. Well, I think that's the the right answer in such a tragic, sad case. Yeah. And hopefully it'll set a standard for the future for not only Walmart but other big companies. And like that's it. what I hope. I hope they don't just pay it and figure that was the cost of doing business and continue on. I hope that actually the, the somehow the courts are able to institute changes in the industry itself, you know, force it like they do through punishment, through, um, you know, standards set and then some type of enforcement. Now, moving on to someone who is no stranger to our show. We talk about him often. <laughs> no, not Chris Brown, Justin Bieber. Uh, Justin Bieber's attorney, Roy Black, did another fantastic job of defending yet another one of his celebrity clients because instead of facing a felony charge of illegal street drag racing from um, his scuffle in January in Florida, in Miami, he now will plead guilty to uh, two misdemeanor counts, careless driving and resisting arrest without 
violence and he will agree to take anger management courses and make a charitable donation uh i think that was a pretty good plea deal for him to agree to and i think roy black worked his magic yet again yeah i think um justin's gonna be thrilled with this gift you know he paid a charitable donation of i think fifty thousand or twenty thousand which for him i guess he's already paid it but i will say this this is one of justin bieber's cases the one that i saw the biggest problem with when it initially happened they filed this as drag racing they filed it as driving under the influence it came out because he was driving a rental car that they were actually able to, um, you know, get the speed records on how fast the car was actually going. And it didn't appear that it ever went really over the speed limit. And then when you saw the surveillance video, it looked like they might have been jockeying for position to maybe start a drag race. But there was no drag racing. And then when they tested his blood, his blood alcohol level was below a .02. And the, the legal limit is .08. And then they released the videotape of the FSTs in the police station and he seemed to be doing... Honestly, I've seen a lot of FSTs. He was doing pretty good. So um, I, I think actually this one, uh, you know, Roy Black, we assume that he's always going to get a, a great deal. But this one, I think legitimately uh, the prosecution knew there was a lot of trouble with their case. So this seemed like a, a fairly fair deal for what the the weak evidence that the prosecution had when they finally fleshed it all out. And now moving on to another uh, childhood star like Justin Bieber, but nothing to the level of Justin Bieber, uh, is Orlando Brown. He was a Disney star on That's So Raven. He was on Full House. I actually remember him from different TV shows. Uh, <laughs> and he has been charged with disturbing the peace and public intoxication. He apparently um, showed up to this woman's apartment in Hollywood in July, threatening to kill her, her daughter, and her deceased mother. He's 28. This woman's 40. Yeah. I guess he met her on the street and then uh, obviously showed up drunk. Whatever he did say uh, didn't rise to the level of criminal threats, according to the city attorney, because they could have charged him with a felony of criminal threats. You know, if mm -hmm. he says, you know, I am going to kill you, and that person is legitimately feels like they, they are in fear for their life because of the threats made, then he can be charged with the felony of criminal yeah. threats. I guess whatever he said didn't rise to that level in the city attorney's opinion, but he's facing public intoxication and disturbing the peace charges because of this. And this is a guy who is no stranger to the justice system. He's had two DUIs. He's violated, violated his probation. Uh, he's been arrested for possession of marijuana. Uh, so is this just another story of child star gone bad? It sounds like he's spiraling out of control, and I, I don't think this is the end of it. You know, the woman, the victim, said the other day he made some passes at me. The boy is 28. I'm 40. He made some sexual passes. I declined, and now he's upset. He's a known actor. He's a known alcoholic, and he sounds really intoxicated. And it was scary because he was not only threatening her, but he was threatening her her three-year-old daughter, and the dispatcher heard it on the 911 tape. So I'm not sure, you know, why they decided that, that wasn't a clear threat. I mean, maybe the, the ability to take, carry out the threat wasn't there that's required by the law. But I, I do think that this is spiraling out of control. I don't know if it's all alcohol um, fueled, but it, somebody needs to step in and say, hey, you need you need help. Step back, get out of the spotlight and, and get your life in order before he becomes, you know, another one of those celebrities in the headlines every week. Well, uh, moving on to another story that got a lot of attention, but the victim in the case remained silent up until now. I want to play the video in just a second for you. Uh, but Marlene Pinnock, she's the woman who this video went viral. She was walking on like a freeway, the side of the freeway, and um, a CHP officer basically came up and just 
pounded her and beat her and punched her and punched her relentlessly and would not give up. This was a homeless woman who was seeking shelter at the time. She said that going through this freeway underpass uh, or overpass was the easiest way to get to where she wanted to go. She ended up being hospitalized because of this incident. So Alexis, if you don't mind pulling up the video for us, I just want to show it to our viewers because really it is outrageous to watch. So you see uh, the oh officer God, right there. She is already uh, standing in the middle and see him come up after her. Now he's not only stopping her, but he pushes her to the ground and he is beating on her over and over and over again. And the uh, video is taken by this driver right here who uh, the audio shows that they're just outraged at what they're seeing and what they're filming. I mean, she is holding her hands up in a defensive position, and he just keeps seeing her over and over. And so she spoke out uh, for the first time, and she said um, that she thought she was going to die that day. I mean, she thought she was going to die because she never knew when when this officer was going to let up. And uh, it was her first public comment since the July 1st interview. Uh, She speaks basically in a whisper. She puts her hands to her temples and grimaces as she's talking about it because it's so hard to basically relive. She's hired an attorney. There will be a lawsuit coming out of this. And I think this is just yet another case of excessive force. And maybe it was the color of her skin yet again. Uh, You know, what led this officer to believe he needed to use that level of force? I understand that she was walking somewhere that she shouldn't have been walking, just like Michael Brown was walking somewhere that he shouldn't have been walking. He was walking in the middle of the sidewalk. She was walking on the freeway. Okay, yes, they were doing something wrong. The police officer, the CHP officer needed to intervene. But why does it need to rise to the level of repeatedly punching someone or even worse, shooting someone? So why does it rise to this level? You know, it's really interesting. And you can even hear on the video, the person who's taking the video, she was doing something dangerous at the beginning. She was crossing an on-ramp to the freeway. And, you know, in L.A., there's tons of traffic and there's a lot of cars. And he's kind of like, oh, my goodness. You know, he, he's nervous about, you know, kind of like laughing. But, hey, she's, you know, stopping traffic and people don't know whether to go around her or to stop. And she's just kind of wandering along. And then it looks like she's heading to the freeway. So, you know, he's even the person who's videotaping is like, oh, my goodness, somebody needs to stop her. And sure enough, here comes that police officer. I'll just assume he's going to stop her. And then the next thing you know, when he has her down and even if she's struggling, why is he hitting her head? Why is he not grabbing for her hands to put them down? Why does he keep punching her? Is he trying to knock her out? And and now we hear that she has these these head injuries. I mean, this could be very serious long-term effects on her, which it, apparently it is. You know, brain injury is extremely dangerous. Um, and it just doesn't make sense. And then, and then even another civilian comes up to try and help. Okay, each of you take a hand. This is a, an elderly woman. You've got two men. It seems like each of them could, and one of them sitting on her already. Both of them could take a hand, and yet he still seems to be, you know, using this this physical violence against her. So I, I think that this is outrageous, and, and I think that rightfully everyone is very upset about this video. And once again, thank heavens we have video. Thank heavens we have video. I, I, I just think it's a necessary part of our world nowadays. I agree. All right. The last thing is tipping the scales. And I think this is a fantastic op-ed that Mari found. It's on The Route, and it's written by... The Root, sorry, The Root. <laughs> and it's uh, written by Jasmine Banks. And it's uh, an op-ed that she wrote talking about Michael Brown. And essentially she brought up an issue which 
is interesting because I was thinking about it too, not in quite this um, point of view, but she said, look, everyone is talking about Michael Brown and they always point out that he had graduated high school and he was just about to start technical college uh, a few weeks that they, you know, they're about to take her down. And even the victim's mother made a big um, effort to point that out when she made statements. She said, look, you know, I know it's hard, but our family, we were doing it different. He graduated from high school, even though he had to, you know, it was it was hard for him to do it and he had to work extra hard. And now he's going to technical college and we were so proud of him. Um, and, and now this happened to him. And the op-ed says, look, does that matter? Why should that matter? Why should that be something that the media picks up on? Because if it's not that, then they pick a picture that shows the person looking like a thug, like a suspect, like a bad person. Um, you know, and everybody has pictures that make them look one way or the other. It just depends on what clothing you're wearing, what the context is. And it, the media seems to pick kind of a side. And you notice in Michael Brown, a lot of the pictures that they keep showing of him is him in his high school graduation um, um, cap and gown. And, and, and so what does it matter whether we see them in a cap and gown or whether we see them in a hoodie? Why does that then somehow to the public say, well, that's how much value you should put on his life and that that should somehow affect the investigation or the way we look at the investigation or the way we look at how important the case is? And doesn't it matter that the, the death is the death? That's the most important thing. Um, a couple things she said. We are saying, look, that brown kid had a good heart. He didn't deserve a bullet. Like we're always fighting to try to get the majority to see our worth. Look beyond my skin color. And just because I'm brown or I'm black, well, I have these other attributes that make me still worthy of your attention because I was killed. Uh, it's a very interesting op-ed that makes you really think. Mari, what did you feel about it? Do you agree with it? I thought it was interesting because uh, the picture that Alexis, her producer, displayed right here is one of the many people who uh, took to Twitter and tweeted the hashtag, if they gunned me down, hashtag. Basically, uh, these people chose a photo of them on a normal basis or whatever, you know, dressed up on the left, and then a photo of them on the right. Like you said, you don't know the context. Uh, you don't know what the situation was. And the hashtag, if they gunned me down, was, okay, if I were killed... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The photo on the right would be the photo that the media would be showing. The photo on the right of me looking like a thug would be the photo that they would be showing. Not the photo on the left, the photo of me in a business suit, the photo that's showing I'm a hard worker. And uh, it was trying to raise awareness of the media bias in these stories. I mean, with Trayvon Martin, uh, the photo, there, there was two different, you know, kind of, angles that came out of that shooting one was you know him looking like a young yes. teen that he was the other was him with a grill in his mouth mm -hmm. okay so what if you have a grill mm -hmm. in your mouth they even tried to um the prosecution tried to bring in evidence uh that he had smoked pot and that he you know had skipped school a lot who cares what does it matter even if he did dress like that even if he did you know use drugs. What does it matter? That's what the op-ed is saying. So the op-ed kind of disagreed with the if they gun me down kind of raising awareness. I'm, I I agree that the hashtag is raising awareness to an important issue of just how the media looks at this issue. Mm -hmm. um, but so what? Even if the media showed the photo on the right of this person, you know, looking like a thug, 
does that mean that their life is of less value than the photo of them on the left as a hard worker? Does that mean that they deserve to die more than the person who graduated from high school is on their way to college? That's the real issue here. And that's why I like the op-ed, because it gets to the root of the Mm -hmm. issue. It's Mm -hmm. not just the media's portrayal. It's how the nation perceives it. Okay, even if the media posts these photos of this person, um, you know, in a negative way or a way that society, you know, should react to and think, oh, this person may have been a dangerous individual. Mm-hmm. So what? Does that mean they deserve to die anymore? Does that mean that their death is any less tragic? Yeah, and I agree that the death is is always tragic, no matter who it is, no matter the circumstances. But we as human beings, we're always looking to try and categorize things. And that's part of, you know, that's where racial prejudice comes from, too, is that people want to compartmentalize people by the color of their skin. People also have certain assumptions based on other factors in people's lives. And it was interesting. At first, they were saying this is a young man about to go to college. Then they said it was a technical college. Like, you know, there's a difference between college and a technical college. People are always looking for information because they are trying to establish in their mind their own assumptions and stereotypes that they're going to apply to somebody. And so, you know, and and that's what we do. We tend to do that. But the problem is when you then push it to say, well, that's how I'm then going to look at the whole case. Like, okay, well, it's really not worth my time because, you know, this kid was out doing something he shouldn't be doing or, you know, because I have certain biases against certain colors of skin. And that so the death is not important. The death is always important. Now, the information that he might have been doing something, that he might have been a criminal suspect, that's important for the investigation investigation of the police officer's actions. But the entire picture of what's going on in that community right now between the community and the law enforcement is something that needs to be looked at no matter what in detail by everyone so that we have objective eyes coming in and determining what needs to be changed. And I think that this op-ed was important because people sympathize more when they feel that it hits closer to home like this could have been one of us Mm -hmm. and that's why so many times it's uh i'm sure you know the phrase it's you know the the white woman in distress basically is always uh the lacey peterson Mm -hmm. you know they get so much attention because to the viewing public that could have been me that could have been one of us and so it's harder for them to relate if it's a photo of someone with a grill in their mouth smoking pot or whatever it is oh well you know i feel farther isolated from that because that's not what i'm like and so i'm going to feel less sympathy but that's not how we should be viewing these deaths a death is a death no matter how you cut it and it's tragic no matter what Mm -hmm. yeah Well, I thought that was a great op-ed, and I appreciate you bringing it to our attention. It's something to definitely think about as we're following uh, this continuing coverage in Ferguson and, sadly, other cases like this that keep coming up all around our country. That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you have a great weekend, and we will see you next time. You can find me at Lonnie Coombs on Twitter. And Mari? You can find me at Mari Fagel. And please tweet me your opinions on what's going on in Ferguson in the Michael Brown shooting and especially this op-ed. We always love your comments and your input. Thank you so much for joining us. From producers Maria Menounos, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, Tweet us or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I'm your BHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in.
The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.